of God brings heaven to earth. It leaves culture upturned and the kingdom upright. The kingdom is pure and holy. It is blessed and set apart. It is righteous beyond all understanding. It is generous beyond earning. Our God's kingdom is good news. His kingdom is saving grace. It rattles our reality and shakes us awake. And it pours out of us as salt and as light. It brings perspective that changes the way we think. It brings vision that changes the way we see. It brings growth that changes who we are. It brings surrender that changes how we live. The kingdom is kindness that doesn't feel fake. And the kingdom is patience that doesn't make sense. It is forgiveness when it doesn't seem possible. It is for the poor in spirit, the lowly, and the persecuted. The kingdom is his, his kingdom is ours, and the kingdom of God is here. Hey everybody, so glad that you're with us no matter where you're joining us from. Uh, glad that you're with us as we continue on in the series. Before I get into my sermon today, I want to take just a minute and pause and talk about some stuff that's coming up. About a month ago, um, realizing that our current world, national, state uh, reality wasn't changing with the COVID, I began to un understand that in the upcoming weeks and months, things would be the same and things would be completely different. And the different part was things surrounding like Christmas and things that I love about Christmas, things that I love about the rhythm, uh, traditions, not only for me and for my family, but for us as a church. And I found myself really kind of grieving that of, of what it might not be like this year. And, um, and then we, we went to work at talking about how can we make this Christmas, albeit different, very meaningful and very significant. And so I want to talk a little bit about that because we believe that while this year things will be a little different than what maybe we've experienced or been used to here at Cornwall Church, can be very, very wonderful celebration of the birth of Jesus in that time together, that we can continue to be kingdom bringers, that we can go and love and be a light to our community. So a couple of things coming up. One of the things that I look forward to every year in the Bellingham campus is the Cornwall at the Mall. In Skagit, you have the Cornwall Toy Hall. And this year, it's going to be a little bit different. Now, we're still going to be involved with the community toy store here in Bellingham and with the, uh, the Young Lives families in Skagit. But instead of the Cornwall at the Mall or the Cornwall Toy Hall, on December 4th, in both our Bellingham and our Skagit campuses, we're having the Cornwall Christmas Lane. And it's a, an opportunity to come and drive through and drop off some toys and gift cards. You can spend that afternoon or that evening going and shopping with your family and bring those, or you can do that beforehand. But on that evening, uh, we're going to have lights, and there's going to be music, and there's things where you place where you can drop off the toys. There's some things you're going to pick up. If you have kids, we have a, a birthday party in a bag for Jesus and for your kids. Uh, there's some stuff for Christmas Eve, and we're even working on a few other surprises. So that'll be on December 4th, and uh, while it's different, we're still thinking this is going to be fantastic and allow us to make a difference in our community. About a week and a half later, on December 16th, we're having, um, 
what we would normally call our Christmas refuge. Now, if you're familiar with refuge, normally we would worship for 45 or 50 minutes, have a very short message and a time of communion. This one's different. Uh, this one's going to be very creative and very fun. It, it's, it, it's really almost... Using the word refuge is almost a, a, a misnomer. Uh, it's a very creative, fun Christmas journey uh, that's going to have music and a storyline with it. And I'm going to give a, a brief talk on that as well as some chances uh, for you to worship along. This is created with the entire family in mind and it will be online. We won't be having it in our buildings in Bellingham or at Skagit, but we'll all be experiencing this on uh, the 16th. So you'll want to be a part of that. And then when it comes to our Christmas Eve services, normally we would have on the 23rd, Christmas Eve Eve, uh, a couple of services in Skagit and pack the, the building with hundreds of people. And then on Christmas Eve uh, here in Bellingham, uh, packing the, the building for, for multiple services. And really, quite frankly, one of the things that I had to grieve was I absolutely love, as, as taxing as it is, I love preaching the Christmas message six times on Christmas Eve Eve and Christmas Eve. But what we're gonna do this year so since we can't gather in these big gatherings, is that we're going to have all of our services combined into one, one online experience that will be live on Christmas Eve. And so during that time, there will be some interactive stuff beforehand. And so if you sign on early, it's some stuff you can participate in real time. And then there's going to be incredible music from our on location around Whatcom and Skagit County. Um, I'm going to be able to give my Christmas message uh, in real time. So if I mess up, there's no editing it out. There's no starting over. It's not a recording. It'll be happening in real time. And then, as is always our tradition, we're going to end with our candlelight service in Silent Night in a very creative and beautiful way. And again, one of the things, uh, ways that you can participate is at the... Uh, Cornwall Christmas Lane or throughout December, picking up the candles and some of the things for that service in advance. So here's the great news about this, is that for the first time, we're able to all have the service while it's in different living rooms across the, the state and maybe even the world. We are all gathering at the same time online. And we've always said, why don't you invite your family and friends to church on Christmas Eve and you have the opportunity this year to gather your family or your friends and to, and to bring church to them. And our prayer and our desire and our hope is this, is that no matter where you are on Christmas Eve, no matter what your plans are on Christmas Eve, that the Christmas Eve service will be the centerpiece of that evening and that you will have that and invite your family to participate with you. That we can truly have a I'll be home, home for Christmas, Christmas Eve service. Now, we really are very excited that this year, while it is different, we believe that it's going to be very meaningful and very significant. And we just want to invite you to participate and be a part of all of that as we continue to celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ this Christmas season. So that's, I just want to give you a little heads up. I know that's a lot of stuff. Some of you say, well, I didn't get all that. Listen. You're going to be hearing about it. Uh, if, you, if we've got your email address, you'll get an email on it. We'll talk about it on the weekends. It'll be on our website, our, our social media. So you'll hear more about that and some more details of things that I didn't have time to cover. But I just wanted to mention that uh, before we get going. All right. So we're continuing on in our Kingdom Culture series. This is week eight. We've been looking at the best sermon ever the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached, it's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Now, today we're going to start in on Matthew chapter 6, and, um, and we're actually only going to spend two weeks in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, today 
we're really only going to focus on one verse out of Matthew chapter 6. And, uh, and so there's a lot of stuff in Matthew 6 we're going to skip over. And so I want to encourage you to read that, study it on your own, dig in on your own. One of the things, and I don't know if this is even legal to do in the church, but we're studying the Sermon on the Mount, and we're studying Matthew chapter 6, and one of the pieces we're not even going to talk about is the Lord's Prayer, which is in Matthew 6. And um, I thought, boy, that's, that's not a good thing. So I thought maybe what we'll do today uh, is we'll start this way. Uh, some of you were raised in churches where every Sunday you recited the Lord, Lord's Prayer. Or maybe if you have a Catholic background, you prayed the rosary. The Lord's Prayer was a part of that praying the rosary. Or maybe in your uh, recovery circles, in AA, you, you prayed the Lord's Prayer. I thought maybe today, since we're not going to talk about it, maybe we ought to just kind of lean into that tradition. And so I want to invite you, if you know it, to say the Lord's Prayer. If you don't, just to listen along. And I'll just let you know, I think I'm going to go old school on this one. I'm going to go with thy and thine rather than you and your and uh, go with the trespasses instead of the debt. So if you want to, you don't have to, uh, if you're in our buildings, if you want to stand right now, again, no pressure on that, or where, if you're in your living room, not if you're driving, but if you want to stand, and let's just say this together, whatever parts of it you know, and uh, just because we're not spending any time talking about it. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Great. You can go ahead and sit down if you are standing. In the middle of that prayer, Jesus prays these words, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is the essence of the entire series that we've been talking about, that God's kingdom would come and that, that this kingdom is the reality now, not just someday off in the future, not just you know when we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. I've got a home in glory land that outshines the sun. You know, I, you know the angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Yes, there's that. But it's not just then and there. It's here and now, up there, down here, that he's saying meant that, that the kingdom and the will of God would be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And that's this good news that we can dwell in this kingdom that right here and right now, that the kingdom of God through Jesus is allowing ordinary people to experience and live in the presence and the power of God right here and right now. And this kingdom life that we're invited into, this with God life that we're uh, called to live is really truly a life of righteousness. And, and you see this whole concept of righteousness throughout the Sermon on the Mount. When we talk to the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they will be filled. Later, the Apostle Paul, in talking about the kingdom of God, writes to our Italian brothers and sisters in Rome, and he says this in Romans, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of, and here it is, of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. What good news that this life is this right life with God, and it's filled with joy and peace because of the Holy Spirit. And then as we were studying, Jesus drops this huge bomb on us when it comes to righteousness in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, when he said, for I tell you that unless your righteousness 
surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. To which they're saying, whoa, whoa, how could that ever be? Well, we're, we're poor in spirit. We're, we're not as righteous as those professional righteous guys to which Jesus said, yes, yes, yes. But I want your righteousness to surpass, not in degree, but in kind. Not more of their righteousness, but different from their righteousness. And so this life that we've been invited into, this reality of God's presence and power to be his people, to live the righteous life, one thing is very, very clear. That what Jesus is saying is as we're in the kingdom, our lives and our experience is to be distinctive. There's a distinction in us as kingdom dwellers and kingdom bringers. And it's this kingdom contrast from the world and from religion that there's this contrast. And we've looked at this all the way along. He says, we don't operate like the rest of the world. It's that Romans 12 thing. Don't be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You think differently. Priorities are different in the kingdom. Your values are different. The way you respond. I mean, you remember when he says, you know, normally love your neighbor and hate your enemy. No, 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 not in the kingdom. There's a contrast to the way the rest of the world does it. When he would say, listen, if you only love those who love you, how are you different from anyone else? Even those who don't believe in God, love those who love them. Love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who wrong you. Those kind of things. But it's not just a contrast to the world. He also makes it really clear that there's a contrast to the religious environment as well. And that's the focal point that we're going to look at today as we look at how is it living in the kingdom, not just being more religious. And throughout um, Matthew chapter six, you see how Jesus is pointing out this contrast with religion. In Matthew chapter six, he says these words. And when you pray, we'll get into this, do not be like the hypocrites. And then later a couple of verses, do not be like them. A couple of things that are really interesting here is in both of these verses, he says, do not. That's like a negative command. And if you read through uh, just chapter six, because he does this again in chapter seven as well, just in chapter six, 11 times Jesus gives his command, do not, do not, do not, do not. And he's not trying to ruin people's fun. What he's saying is there's some things you need to unlearn. There's some habits and some practices you need to undo. There's some ways of living that you need to unfollow. There's, there's some stuff, so do not do that. And then he says, and he uses this word hypocrite. Hypocrite. Um, I found this interesting. In the New Testament, Jesus is the only one who uses the word hypocrite. And he uses it 17 times. And it's always talking about the religious. Now for us, we hear the word hypocrite and immediately, I think for most of us, we think of a negative religious connotation because that's usually how it's used here. In Jesus' day, the word hypocrite was not even a religious word. And it wasn't even a negative word. It was a theatrical word. It would be similar to kind of an archaic word now, but it would be similar to the word um, thespian, like an actor. A hypocrite, and in the Roman Empire, theater was huge. I mean, every Roman city had to have a theater, the entertainment. So the, the hypocrites were the actors. They were people who would play a role. Their whole idea was, was to, to be someone that they were not. They were portraying someone that they were not. And 
basically, they were deceiving the audience, and the better they were at deceiving the audience, the greater the applause and the accolades that they would receive. So you begin to see where Jesus is going with this. He's using something they see as a very positive thing, and he's taking it and he's saying, but when it comes to religion, when you have these hypocrites, when you have these thespians, when you have these actors, uh, maybe a word that we could use is, when you have these posers, they, they look like they're something that they're not. In fact, they want to be known for something that they're not, and maybe they're even struck with the idea of being something they're not. Now, I'm, I'm a bit of an expert in this arena because in one fashion or another, I've been a poser most of my life in that if I couldn't be something, I wanted to at least look that way. I mean, this started when I was a little kid. I wanted to be a magician so bad. And I didn't know any magic tricks, but I just thought it'd be the coolest thing to be a magician. And, and every really good magician that I'd ever seen always had you know, this dark cape and top hat and dark beard and all that. And so when I was about in the second or third grade, I decided if I can't be a mag magician, at least I can look like one. And I found, of all things, this is kind of uh, irony, uh, I found a magic marker, and I decided to put a, uh, a magician's face on. So this is a picture uh, of me. When I was in the second grade, I had taken a magic marker and had, uh, had drawn a beard and mustache on me. I had my own little magic wand here and, and different things. Now, the crazy thing is, this was on a Saturday night if you're familiar at all with Magic Marker, this doesn't come off a whole lot. My dad was a pastor, had church the next morning, and as my friend Sherry Beckbed would say, into every life a little Sharpie must fall. So I was the only one in the second or third grade Sunday school class with a five o'clock shadow the next morning. But I wanted to look like a magician, even though I wasn't. Now this wasn't just a childhood thing for me. In high school, my brother and I, we hunted a little bit, but we loved the idea and we longed to be like real hunters. And we would read Outdoor Life, and we would read Field and Stream, and I was enamored, especially with bow hunting and the camouflage and all that. And for my ninth birthday, I was given a 50-pound recurve bow, and then I saved up my money because I wanted to be this bow hunter, and I bought a, a camouflage suit. Uh, so, so here's a picture of me in high school. I've got my, my bow, and I've got this camouflage, and I, I'm ready to go out and, and, and harvest the big buck or whatever it was. Now, what you need to know is that I never, ever wore this camouflage suit outside of my house, ever. Um, with my bow, I shot a lot of bales of hay, but maybe got one rabbit, never did anything. But it was, and here's the crazy thing. A month ago, I'm at Cabela's, just south. I'm at Cabela's. You know where I am? I'm in looking at camouflage stuff. I'm looking at duck decoys and goose decoys. I mean, I'm just drawn by this. I'm not a hunter. But it's just this idea, it's like this poser. I want to be something that I'm not. And if we're talking about me as a poser, man, honestly, you have to go to my college years when my roommate and I uh, were posing. Uh, this is almost 40 years ago. Look at all that hair. I mean, you talk about poser. Okay, now, so the reason I tell you all that is because it was this, this wanting to portray an image of something that I really wasn't. And while all of these are pretty benign and kind of humorous, Jesus comes along and he says there's something that's far more insidious, far more toxic, and even lethal. It's when there are those who are religious posers, who are like these actors of righteousness, and they love the idea they would prefer to be known as being righteous more than they actually want to be righteous. And that's where Jesus says, 
I don't want you to be like them. Do not follow their example. So he gives us this guiding principle, and this is a verse we're going to come back to again and again today. It's out of Matthew chapter 6, verse 1, and he says this. Be careful, like warning, like because this is so insidious, you might not even recognize this one. You've got to be mindful. You've got to be, you know, actun, you know, you know, warning, danger, Will Robinson. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your father in heaven. And this is what he's talking about. This contrast from those who are religious who like to just appear. Now, before we get into this, I think there's something that, that we need to, to confront, attention, because if you've read through the entire uh, Sermon on the Mount, those three, three chapters, which I've encouraged you to do, and you are really astute in this, there may be something here that causes you to be a little bit confused, kind of scratch your head and say, I'm not sure what's going on. Because what we just read is Jesus saying, do not do your acts of righteousness, righteousness before men to, to be seen by men. And yet, as we studied earlier, just not even a full chapter earlier, a half a chapter earlier in Matthew chapter five, he said, in the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. It's like, okay, wait a second. Here he's saying, do not do acts of righteousness. Here he's saying, do, you know, these, let your light shine. And, and he's saying, don't do this before men. Here he's saying, do this before men. And he's saying, don't do it just to be seen by them. And he's saying here that you may be seen by, by them and praise your heavenly Father. And, you, and you, you look at these two and you're like, come on, Jesus, this is your same sermon. It's like you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. You're like, you know, is this a contradiction, what he's talking about here? This Matthew chapter five and Matthew chapter six and saying these two different things because on, on the one hand, in Matthew five, he says, do this. In Matthew chapter six, he says, don't do this. And it sounds like he's talking about the same thing. Like there's a command and then a prohibition. Like, yes, do this, but now don't do this. So, so it's, a, it's a little bit confusing on, on what he's talking about and where he's going with this. And so I wanna spend just a little bit of time on this before we go too much deeper uh, into this. While we have studied the Matthew 5 passage, let's focus on the Matthew 6 passage. In Matthew 6, 1, again, he says this, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. When he follows up this first verse, he will then, over the next 17 verses, give three examples, three very important examples, three examples of acts of righteousness that are significant, like, Helping out the needy, praying, fasting, these, these disciplines, these, these habits, these practices of the spiritual life. And in all three of them, he kind of has this pattern that he goes through. And he says, when you do this, don't do it like the hypocrites. Don't do it like the religious leaders because they get their reward in full. But when you do, do it in secret. Don't let anyone know about it. And God, your Father, who sees what's done in secret, he will reward you. Now, again, sorry for this, but let me give you one more thing because sometimes this is misunderstood. Let me say, tell you what Jesus is not saying. What he is not saying is no one can ever know that you gave, that you were generous, that you helped, that you served. No one can ever know that you prayed. No one can ever know that you fasted. That is not what he's saying. I mean, because think about this. 
There was a time Jesus took his disciples to the temple where people were giving the offering and said, hey, guys, let's watch this. And then he commends this widow for giving her offering. If he's saying, don't ever let anyone know, then why was Jesus pointing her out? Or how about this? When he says, and when you pray, go into your, to, to this private, to quiet, this secret where, where your heavenly father sees what's done in secret. And yet he taught his disciples how to pray. And fasting, if no one's ever supposed to know, how is it that we know that Jesus fasted for 40 days before he started his ministry? So it's not this just saying, absolutely not, no one can ever know, you have to hide all this from everybody. What Jesus is confronting is right things with wrong motives. It's it's, it's doing the right things. It's the actions are right, but the motive behind it is not right. So in chapter five, when he says, You know, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. They may see them, they may not, but the ultimate goal and the result is that God gets the glory. In chapter six, he says, don't do your deeds to be seen by men because now you're really wanting to make sure that they see it and the ultimate goal is that you receive the glory. I I suppose that since we don't have any here, we can pick on celebrities and politicians. Have you ever known any celebrity or a politician that would do something that's kind of for PR, for an image, like a photo op, and you know they're not really maybe building that house or feeding those kids or going to that church or care about this family, but they're doing it for, for, he's saying, listen, we can do the same thing. And it's not about trying to make sure absolutely no one ever sees, it's checking our motives. Dallas Willard said this. He said, not are we seen doing a good deed, but are we doing a good deed in order to be seen? Big difference here. Yeah, there's some things that happen, and yeah, maybe someone's gonna see, but we're not doing it for them to see. As opposed to, here's my motive. Anyone watching? Oh, good. Now I'll do this so that I can be seen. Let me give you a a small illustration of this. Last Tuesday, um, our middle school ministry, The Edge, was, was meeting here in Kids were showing up, parents were dropping their kids off, and I was just out kind of waving at, at kids and families and parents and such. And a friend of mine, Jeff, came, and he has two boys in uh, middle school. So he drives up, and he drops his two boys off, and they, may, I think, had a friend or two. And then, so I went over to the window saying hi to him, and I looked in the back seat, and his younger daughter is in the back seat all by herself. I said, oh, man, you're not old enough to go to the edge. And he said, no, that's okay. We're having a daddy-daughter date night. That's hard for me to say. We're having a daddy-daughter date night tonight. We're going to go get ice cream and, and this and that. Now, he isn't having a date night with her so that I can see that. I did see that. I think it's a great thing. I think it's a great thing for fathers to do. I think it's a great thing that Jeff was doing this with his daughter. But that was not his motive. He didn't say, come on, sweetheart, get in the car. Hopefully we'll see Pastor Bob and I can say that we're going to have a daddy-daughter date and then he'll think I'm a really great husband or father. That's not the goal. And that's what Jesus is saying. There might be times you do deeds. There might be times you give and there might be times that you pray and there might be times that you fast and people know it's just that is not the motive for why you do these things. Because for the, for the, the, the religious leaders, their whole idea was with this, this acts of righteousness, their piety was for personal purposes. And as long as I'm gonna alliterate something, they wanted to draw attention to themselves that people would be aware and acknowledge that and affirm that 
They would want them to maybe even give them some accolades and some verbal awards that they would have all of this uh, admiration for what they were going through. And that an act of mercy can actually become an act of vanity. And that that which is meant to be altruistic can become me-centric. And it's all about me. And Jesus is confronting that issue. And he's taking this on. So, in the verse that we already looked at, out of uh, Matthew 6, verse 5, he gives one of the examples. And he says this. And when you pray, we'll come back to that. When you pray, do not, here's one of those 11, do not be like the hypocrites, like the posers. Don't be like the righteous posers. For they love to pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with loving to pray. We want you to love to pray. I want to love to pray. We want to pray first, pray always. They love to pray standing in the synagogues. There's nothing wrong with standing. I, I often will say when we're meeting in person, why don't you stand for closing prayer? Nothing wrong with standing and praying in church and on the street corners. That's a beautiful thing to pray in life, to pray without ceasing, to pray whatever we're going through every single day. They love to pray standing in the synagogues on the street corners. Here's the problem. To be seen by men. Like you could almost take all this out when he says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites for they love to be seen by men. Forget all this. He says, I tell you the truth. They have received their reward in full. They don't care about the prayer piece. They don't care if they're connecting with God. They don't care if there's, there's this close communion with God, there's this time of confession that, that, that they feel his presence or they're, they're growing in him. They don't come here with this idea to intercede and to seek answers to prayer. In fact, they don't care if they feel close to God at all. They don't care if God answers their prayer at all as long as, as long as people say, wow, did you hear them pray? That was like amazing. And he says, and that's why they do this. They love this accolades of how they can pray and the words they use and how eloquent they are. They love that. And they love when people notice it and they see that. Jesus reserved his most harsh words for the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. Let me push pause right now. I'm a teacher of God's word. Am I a leader of religious organization? So when I read what Jesus says to teachers of the law and the religious leaders, I, I really need to pay attention because it was guys like me that he had the biggest problem with. And in, I've referenced this in Matthew 23. He gives these seven woes to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. But in a, kind of this preamble, he's telling his, his crowd, he says, listen, man, don't do what they do. And then in uh, Matthew 23, verse 5, he says, everything they do is for men to see. That's it. They're like religious exhibitionists. Their whole idea is we just want people to see this. We want to expose our righteousness to be seen. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. They love the titles. They love the honor. They love the recognition. They love all of this. 
Now, let me just take uh, one little uh, detour down an alley for a second. Some of you are aware of this, some of you are not. It says this, they make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Some of you are very familiar with this. Some of you might be going, I don't even know what a phylactery, I don't don't even know what he's talking about. What he's talking about is in reference to something that is commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and Numbers chapter 15, and many of the Orthodox people uh, still follow this today. Uh, Here's a picture that I took in Jerusalem a couple of years ago of an Orthodox Jewish man at the Wailing Wall. And as you'll see, he's got this stuff all wrapped around his his arm, and he's got this little deal on his head, and he's got this this, uh, kind of a, a throw here, this little poncho deal. This is what Jesus was talking about. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, with the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord your God is one. You should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. He says, listen, you, you talk about this with your kids. Talk when you walk along the streets, when you sit down, when you go to bed at night. And then he says, and bind them on your foreheads and on your hand. And that's the phylactery. This is not some Assassin's Creed kind of get up costume. He's got the scriptures. He's got that Deuteronomy 6 scripture in a little box, this phylactery, and on his hand. And so Jesus is saying, and they make their phylacteries wide. And then in Numbers chapter 15, it talks about making the tassels, that, that there are these tassels. And, and this is called a, um, a, a talit, and the tassels are called tzitzits. And the tassel was to remind them of the commands of God. So both the phylactery with the scripture of Deuteronomy 6 and the the tassels on their garments was to remind them about God's commandments. What had happened was, instead of it being a reminder about God's commandments, it became a display of their pseudo-righteousness, that the the wider their phylacteries, the bigger they were, the longer their tassels, like, wow, look how spiritual they are. They really never forget. Let me, let me kind of bring it up to modern days. Let me say, what if in my mind I thought, you know, I, I want to be mindful of God's word. I want to be mindful of his commands. I want to be mindful of his truth. I want to be mindful of his hope. I want to be mindful. I, you know, I, I just want, I want to carry a Bible with me all the time, just as a reminder. And, and I don't ever want to forget what Christ did for me on the cross and so maybe it'd be good to have a little, and for some of you, that's why you wear a cross. That's why you have a cross in your pocket or your purse or on your neck that, or your earrings or what have you. Some of it, it's a reminder. And so I decided I want to keep God's word with me, close to me, and, and I want a cross. I never want to forget his word, and I never want to forget what, what Christ has done on the cross. And then I decide, okay, so from here on out now, I just, I walk around like this. And it's a little bit obvious and it's kind of pointing out, man, he's got a Bible. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's a, quite a burden, but it reminds me of the promises of God and what Jesus did for me. And if I walk around like this, it's really drawing a whole lot more attention to me. And while I may have had originally this motive to not forget the commands of God, not forget the sacrifice of Christ, now I start doing this so that people notice and think, wow, our pastor is so spiritual. I mean, look at the Bible he carries around and he always takes that cross no matter where he goes. Oh, what a man of God he is. And that, that is not gonna uh, achieve the goals that God has for me to be transformed into the image of Christ. So he says these, these religious leaders, they, they've got these things that started off good, but they made it all about themselves. 
Paul writes to the church in Philippi and says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So maybe we come to the conclusion then, okay, well, I'm not supposed to do this. No one's supposed to see, so maybe I'm just not supposed to do anything at all. And that comes back to that's not what Jesus was saying. Let's go back to Matthew 6.1. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. He's, He's pointing out the motive Because as he goes on and he talks about giving to the poor and helping out the needy, as he talks about praying, as he talks about fasting, in all three instances, he says, and when you, not if you or do not, he says, and when you give to the poor, when you help the needy, when you pray, when you fast. See, for Jesus... It was just like, well, of course they're going to pray. Of course they're going to be generous. Of, of course they're going to deny themselves. Uh, of course, that's, that's a part of following me. He never questioned if we would do it. But what he makes clear is your motives are not to be seen by others. Because if, if you give and you serve and you help and you pray and you fast and it's all to be seen by men, God's not going to punish you. He's just going to say, well, it's obviously this is not about me. It's not about my purposes. It's not about my glory. So I tell you what, I'll just back out of this one. You go ahead and do your little uh, show there, your thespian act, and, and people will applaud you, and they'll, and they'll think you're super spiritual, and, and, and that's, that's great for, for you. If, that, if that's what you want, I'll just back out because it really is not about me at all. And um, the reward you get from them saying, man, look how spiritual she is. Look how wonderful he is. You enjoy that because that's the only reward you're going to get. No, I'm not going to punish you. I'm just telling you that's what's going to happen. And to be honest, you're going to miss out on what could have been. You're going to settle for something far less than what you could have had. So enjoy that, all that applause, all that acknowledgement, all that admiration, because you're giving up a lot, so that's what you've got. Okay, this might be a really, really weak analogy of that or illustration of that. So this time of year, um, when the weather's really nasty, if I haven't run, it's dark, you know, it's rainy, sometimes I will walk in the mall. Now, I am not I'm not a bona fide mall walker. I don't have the official mall walking shoes. I don't have the white New Balance from Big Five. I don't have those shoes yet. But sometimes I'll walk in the mall. And let's say one time I'm walking in the mall and someone comes up to me and hands me this certificate and says, hey, we noticed you're walking in the mall tonight. You're the recipient of this certificate. And the certificate says that this is good for one full priced item in the entire mall, any store. No restrictions. Anything I want, I can have one full-priced item, free. It's for me. It's from Bell's Fair Mall. And so I start thinking. I start going around, okay, which store will I go to? And I start thinking, I could go to Men's Warehouse and get a new suit. Because sometimes I wear a suit, like if I'm doing a wedding or a funeral, I can get a new suit. That'd be a good thing. Okay, I could do that. Oh, I could go to Zoomies and get a new snowboard. That'd be good because I like new snowboards. That'd be great. Or, or, or I could go to Verizon or T-Mobile and get the iPhone 12 Pro Max for free. That would be awesome. Uh, oh, ooh, I could go to Ben Bridge. 
Benbridge. Now, I'm not a big jewelry guy, but like, I could get a diamond tennis bracelet for my wife for Christmas, and that'd be like really super cool. Or, or oh, I could go to the GameStop, and I could get that, that brand new PlayStation 5 or that Xbox Series X that just came out this week. I could, I could get that. Oh, wait, 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 there's Dick's Sporting Goods. I could go get golf clubs. I know I've never golfed, but I, why not start now? Okay, I get golf clubs, and, and I'm thinking I can get one thing no matter what I want, no restrictions, and I'm going around store to store everywhere. I've got my little certificate, and then something catches my eye, and I'm like, oh, I've got it. I know what I'm going to redeem this coupon for, and this is it. I'm at the Plucky Duck uh, vending machine because there's a prize every time. So now I'm like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trade this in, and I'm going to get a Plucky Duck. In fact, what I end up with is a little barbershop singing Plucky Duck, and I got that, and I'm like, that's what I got. Now, anyone who would have followed me on that or seen me saying, are you kidding me? You could have had something so much more meaningful, so much more valuable, so much better, so much more significant, so much more useful, so much more lasting, and you settled for a plucky duck. And I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, when you start doing your acts of righteousness before men, when you want to be recognized, when that's your motive, you're settling for a plucky duck reward when you could have had something so much more and you chose this. Why would you do that? Why would anyone do that? And our human condition is this, is that we are so addicted to approval of others. The disease to please, to, to be seen, to be thought of something, that we so want that that sometimes we would give up something significant and eternal for a plucky duck just because we want the applause of others. We want the accolades of others. And so Jesus says, here's, here's the answer to this. You as a kingdom dweller in this kingdom of God, as a righteous life, dwelling in the presence, live your life for an audience of one. Live your life for an audience of one. Not for what everybody else thinks. Not for what people are gonna say. Not for what your family, your friends, your community group, your coworkers. Don't seek their approval. Don't seek their applause. Don't try to please them. Seek the approval and the applause of God. Let your identity and your value and your worth and your significance be found in what God thinks of you. And live your life with an audience of one. Now I want to again say something. That who Jesus is addressing, the, the hypocrites, the ones he's talking about, are guys who are in positions like me. And I want to tell you that this sermon is a lot easier to give and deliver than to live. Because I have to always be asking myself, Bob, are you doing whatever it is because you want to honor and please God and follow Jesus or because you're a pastor? Are you doing this out of pure motives or do you know that this is going to make a really good sermon illustration somewhere down the road? Are you doing this because this is what Christ has called you to or because you know if someone watches, they'll think, wow, look at that. And to be honest, 
as I was writing this sermon and I talked about this part right here, I was thinking about this part, there's a part in my head that thinks, are you doing that because you want people to think, wow, look how transparent and vulnerable he can be and humble. Do you, do you, see, do you see my addiction to approval? The disease to please? I mean, this is a constant battle, a constant dying to myself, constant awareness. God, purify my heart, purify my motives. Help me to, help me to live for an audience of one no matter what anyone else thinks or says. You know, the Apostle Paul, he had been a Pharisee. He had, done, he had had the wide phylacteries. He had had the long tassels. He, he had all that and, until he discovered the grace of Christ. And he writes these words in Galatians chapter six. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Jesus gives these three examples. Giving and helping the needy, praying, and fasting. And in all three of them, he gives the antidote to help us get away from this hypocrisy. He says, do this in secret. Do it where no one else is aware. Do it even when you won't be recognized for it. And like the antidote is what Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, which by the way, is a much easier Willard book to read than the conspiracy theory, or the uh, divine conspiracy. He refers to it as the discipline of secrecy. The discipline of secrecy. And this whole idea of the discipline of secrecy is when we do things only we and God know about. That we help out someone in need and they will never know who did that. It's kind of this secretive, um, kind of a black ops, dark, just, just God and I know. This covert operation. And that we spend time in prayer and even lengthy time in prayer, not because there's a prayer vigil or not because someone's going to watch and see where, where's, where's, where did, where'd he go, where'd she go. Oh, that, that there's this like, you steal away. And almost like this, this secret rendezvous with God just to pray, just to talk. And that the fasting, the fasting would be like this underground activity that no one else even knows about. To do this secretly, not, not with a neurotic obsession to make sure I hide it. And if anyone ever finds out, it, it, it negates the whole thing. That, that's not it. Again, Dallas Willard says this. He says, secrecy, rightly practiced, enables us to place our public relations department entirely in the hands of God who lit our candles so we could be the light of the world. Saying, listen, I just leave that with God. I'm not trying to do image management, image control. I, I, I'm not trying to worry about, okay, but how am I supposed to do this? It's the light of the world. I leave that to God. I'm just going to do this for him and not to be seen by others. All right, so this is the last time. Let's go back to this verse one more time. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, 
you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So let me make it really practical for us. Here's a challenge I want to throw out to every single one of us who are listening today. And let's use the three examples that Jesus uses. This week, here's your challenge. This week, do, someone to, do something to help someone with their need, big or small, this is you and God, without them knowing about it, without you needing to have recognition for it. And it might be just seeing a need around the house and helping without being asked and not even claiming to have done it. It might be helping out a needy family by just dropping off groceries under the cover of night or, or leaving a, 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 a gift card. It might mean helping out with an organization that's giving Thanksgiving meals away or the Lighthouse Mission. Just do something and don't ask for a tax receipt and don't ask to be acknowledged and don't do it for anyone else. Just do something to help someone else in need. Just the only one who knows is God. That's the first. And then take some time this week just to get away and to spend some time in prayer. For some of you, you do this all the time anyway that no one else would know about. Spend some time to worship God, to draw near to him, to surrender to him, to confess to him, to submit to him, to lift up the needs of our country, our world, our, our government, our leaders, our friends, our church. And no one else knows about it but just you and God. And then to fast. Maybe it's a meal. Maybe it's a day. Maybe it's social media. Maybe it's electronics. Maybe it's music. I, I don't know. And if you're saying, I don't know anything about this. I don't even know what this fasting thing is. If you want to know about fasting, I did, a sermon, I did a whole series on it in January, and one of them was like Fasting 101. Just goes through really what fasting is all about. You can go back and see that online if you want to. But to just fast something this week, to say no to something good, to say yes to something better. And then next week, we'll all post them on Facebook and see who's the most righteous. Okay, just kidding. I'll never know if you do this or not because you're not doing it for me to know. The idea is that no one will ever know except our Father who sees what is done in secret and he will reward you. And that reward might just be the sense of him saying, that's my girl, that's my boy. That reward might be the ongoing transformation of dying to your old self that always wants to be recognized and approved. That reward might be something we don't see until eternity. That reward might be the impact it has on others' lives. Your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Play your life to an audience of one.